Here, here, the humanitarian podcast, a podcast by Here Geneva. My name is Valhambi Verbruggen. Today on Here, here, I am joined by Balthazar Stalin. Balthazar is the director of digital transformation and data at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you very much for your time and for uh, sitting down with me today. Pleasure. It makes sense to start with the data breach from January. Yeah, I, I can say a few words about it. So indeed, we realized in January 2022 that our systems had been um, attacked by a sophisticated cyber attack and that data sets were breached of over half a million people. And these were actually data related to a family link network of the Red Cross and Red Crescent societies. Uh, we immediately um, informed the public very transparently and, of course, also our partners on that breach, uh, also clearly disactivating the system, rebuilding it, uh, reinforcing the security, and of course uh, doing the whole work of reaching out to, to, to the partners who reached out to the data subjects. And up to today, we haven't had any indication that the data was published or traded. We haven't been approached with any kind of ransom demand, but we preferred to really communicate the worst case scenario, and that is that these data sets were exported. We don't know what was exported or exfiltrated, but unfortunately we have to start from the worst case assumption. Okay. They had the technical means to do so, and I think it's uh, shown a spotlight on the fact that humanitarian actors are not exempt from cyber attacks and that we need to be particularly careful about our cybersecurity. It's a, a challenge for humanitarian actors. Uh, it's a question also what kind of degree of cybersecurity should humanitarian actors aim for? Are we looking at weapon grade kind of mm. cybersecurity? Uh, we have to be extremely transparent about the standards we apply. We have to be very transparent when such an incident happens. And we have to, of course, as a protection actor, be very careful about the fallout. For us, our key concern uh, was, of course, could harm come to the people whose data we have had in this system? And that is, in a way, the driving uh, motivation uh, where we try to mitigate the risks. Mm. I mean, we are going to get into more detail in terms of the risk management, but I thought maybe it would be a good idea to just lay out the terms. I've seen the incident at the ICRC talked about both as a cyber attack and as a data breach. What's the difference between those two things? I think that the, the cyber attack is, is an attack that could have different uh, impacts on systems. It could mm. be paralyze a system, for instance. That's what we see in ransom attacks. So you can uh, hijack a system and people can't use it any longer. The screens are blocked and, and very often that's of a criminal nature. And you can afterwards, of course, try to force an organization to then pay in order that the systems become accessible again that may or not then be accompanied with an attack against your data i think a data breach means that the systems if i use the the, the real um, the real world uh, example of a wall is being breached it means that people managed to get through your defensive walls and managed to get into the space where there is data and that means that this data was accessed uh, by non-authorized persons or, or entities or groups and that you cannot exclude that uh, they, on one hand, they can just have a look at specific data sets, but they can also, of course, exfiltrate data, can try to, to steal data. Neither is it, they could theoretically also delete data or they could simply copy it and, and leave the data behind. They could manipulate the data. So I think there is various forms of harm that could be inflicted upon your data this may be spotlighted 
um, questions around data management and data security, but um, one of the things that came out quite a bit afterwards was the ICRC isn't the first organization to whom this has happened. They're just the first to speak about it. Mm-hmm. And so in light of all of this, what personal data do you think should agencies be collecting? It's a very good question. I mean, one of the data protection principles is actually data minimization. So the idea is that you do not collect unnecessarily data mm-hmm. and that you are also um, of course very thoughtful about how you store it where you keep it how long you keep it when do you delete it that you spell out clear rules clear commitments and I think uh, what we did at the ICSC um, is that we have very clear and, and publicly shared uh, data protection standards and that are independently monitored uh, by an independent control commission that can also be seized by data subject if they feel that their rights have been infringed upon by the way we we manage data. So we have, and it's perhaps ironic, uh, been very forceful and and arguing and pleading for a strong data protection. And and in in this sense, uh, of course, I think uh, it's um, the fact that we were ourselves uh, now victim of a sophisticated cyber attack was for us a terrible blow. That's Mm. clear. It 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 was a shock. But I hope that this attack, but also the way we tried to to lead by example in terms of transparency provides a, a catalyst for the humanitarian sector to really take this issue of humanitarian data and how we best protect it very seriously. And I think there is an element also of, of a non-attack. In, in the physical world, the ICSC, its delegations, its staff um, tries to convince people not to attack it in the first place. We don't have military escorts, if you allow me yeah. this parallel. We, we go around the world in our cars uh, and and. Our best defense is actually that belligerents um, do not attack us in the first place. And that very often can be belligerents, but it can also be criminal groups. We depend on on this acceptance. And I think if we transmit that now into cyberspace, uh, I'm not sure that cybersecurity efforts of internal organizations uh, will always be stronger than sophisticated attackers. I think there are certain actors that have a sophistication and we see it, that they can penetrate even defense establishments. So it is very difficult for an organization to get to that level. So I think part of our security in that cyberspace is also convincing people not to attack us in the first place, as we do in the physical world. And all these efforts go hand in hand and have to be as transparent as possible. Yeah. Still on the collection aspect, who do you think should be collecting the data? Because So I was reading this report by GPPI, I think it was issued this year, where they explained that um, a lot of the time it's implementing partners who collect the data, yeah. but then it's not the implementing partners who are sharing the data afterwards and sharing it back up for reporting yeah. purposes with donors. So how do you factor that in? Because obviously it diffuses the, I mean, chain of command isn't the right term, but you get the, you get what I mean? No, it's, 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 it's an excellent question. So so, so as I said, clear standards are mm-hmm. important and, and standards also have to be clear on who actually you know, uh, manages the data and has the accountability for the management of the data, uh, for the handling of the data. The data ultimately belong to what you call in jargon the data subjects, which are really the people 
whose data we here talk about if, if, if we talk about personal data. So they, they are the owner of the data as, as, as data subjects. But there are clear responsibilities. Now, ICSC, we do not have a model contrary to some of the big UN agencies where we essentially work through implementing partners. But we, we have 20,000 women and men in, in, in some hundred countries around the world that we do most of our activities ourselves. So in this sense, the, the, the implementing partner issue is is, is not a key issue for us because for, for the ICSC data, we do have, um, uh, in, in a way, it's our own staff doing it. But what is interesting that the system that was preached is, is a system of family links. And in order to re-establish family, you need, of course, various partners and the Red Cross and the Red Cross network with over 190 national society, Red Cross and Red mm-hmm. Crescent Society in different countries. A number of these societies, over 60, use the system. So indeed, the system that was breached was actually containing data that were managed essentially by national societies. And that added a certain complexity to the crisis. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you ensure a principled approach to humanitarian data? I, I think what you have to do is try to be thoughtful about how you manage and process the data. And that means also that the, the, the technological solutions that you use have to be well assessed uh, through data protection impact assessment. So typically, when, when we before we deploy any tool, uh, we, we must make a data protection that it's not a practice at the ICSC, a data protection impact assessment. What does it actually mean uh, for the people and what kind of technology can we use to be in sync with the data protection rules? So, of course, in the first place, you need to have policies on these issues. And I believe also that there are responsible approaches that these policies are, are openly shared uh, with the public, that they can also see against which standard do you uh, hold yourself accountable for. And, uh, and of course, uh, another big part of it is indeed that you try to do what you can with regard to the cybersecurity to be state of the art and 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 uh, that you are also very transparent with the people you try to protect and assist in, in terms of rules that are applicable. Now, there are, of course, difficulties if you, say, go into a besieged city with a team of four people and they have to try to take on the fire, bring medical supplies to a hospital and you talk to people. How can you explain what are your rules if you if you talk to them, if you take any kind of data from them? I think in, in the heat of action, it's not always easy and it begs really the question also of the digital literacy of of people in war zones, how much do they have an understanding? Even in, in peaceful societies, people often are quite flippant about data protection, don't really understand the systems, technology, the subtitles of it. Yeah. So I think there are limits of how far you can do that in the heat of action, but I think at least you should have a responsible way of striving constantly to walk the talk and, and to be also very transparent about rule rules and how you strive to implement them. We'll get a chance to come back to digital literacy in the next episode of the podcast. But so the um, the DPIA, that's at the project or program design phase. You said that was standard ICRC policy. Do you know if that's the case for other international organizations? I think um, it's, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's necessarily a standard because you need experts to do so. So you need, of course, a data protection setup of experts that, and you need certain rules. So I would, before you come to the impact assessment, I would sort of say how many of the internal organizations have data protection rules and policies, and then how do they try to implement them? And, and then in the implementation phase, mm-hmm. you come to the data protection impact. So I would even 
ask the question at a high level, how many of the organizations have policies and then how have they equipped themselves to implement those? And perhaps third um, part is who verifies that this implementation takes place? And I believe there are different degrees of, of maturity among organizations uh, on, on, on data protection, but I see a growing interest and a growing move towards going to towards such uh, standards. I, I think the, the humanitarian organizations will increasingly be challenged and held accountable on how they, they manage data. And it is for me today part of being a professional general organization that you have these standards. But I don't think that everybody has these rules and the capacity to, to implement them. Do you think that the EU bringing GDPR into force is has had an impact, will have an impact? Because some of these organizations are operating out of EU states. Absolutely. No, I think it, it's a very interesting one. To, to sort of see how regulation uh, goes. And you see t- typically in, in, in the USA, you see certain uh, states at state level uh, who have legislation that are actually very close to the rules applicable in Europe. And it becomes, I spoke to tech companies who basically said it's very complicated. We would rather have one standard for the whole of the USA than having different standards mm-hmm. at state level. So I think there is probably a overall movement uh, towards greater regulation on on. on data protection. There is not the one world standard. Now, are the European rules, um, have they been an accelerator to, to invest in data protection? Absolutely. Absolutely. For us, uh, clearly, it was also um, an important challenge that in order to keep our capacity to transfer data uh, from war zones uh, to European countries where often families live and, and need to find each other, it, it was very important that we can also handle data, continue to process data across international borders. And that meant also that uh, uh, the investment in data protection, uh, I think that the fact that there is clear regulation provides an impetus and an accelerator for people who need to process data from or towards European countries. And that is clearly also the case for the Red Cross and Red Crescent network on family links. Yeah. And so what role do you see for governments in terms of the question of them helping to build or enable a regulatory environment, but that's not the only role that they could play. And what happens if governments asked for data to be handed to them? And I will have a follow-up question in terms of donors specifically, but I'll let you answer this. Uh... I think the governments have, it's, it's, it's a very large question. I mean, of course, governments have a certain responsibility to, 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 to regulate, I, I, I feel, the, the way data is, is managed in their, in, in their given context. Now, with regard to uh, humanitarian data, I believe what we need to strive for is an international consensus that independently, I would sort of say, of now national legislation that still differ considerably between different countries, um, that we that we manage to forge a consensus that humanitarian data should be protected, should not be attacked, but also should not be used for any other purpose. Humanitarian organizations depend on the trust of the people they try to to serve. And uh, if we can't um, guarantee to people that the data that we collect will not be used against them, which is a, a way of reinterpretation of the do no harm principle. We have in the humanitarian sector for, for decades had a do no harm principle. I think we have to transpose this do no harm principle into the digital space and sort of say, how can we ensure as a humanitarian sector, as a humanitarian community, that what we do doesn't cause unintentionally harm? And in the digital space, that needs an understanding of technology, of impact of technology. But we can't control it all ourselves as humanitarian actors. There's part of it that we can control and that we should control. 
control. But there are also parts of it where we have to, I believe, yes, lobby and convince states to basically refrain from asking humanitarian actors to share data that then would be used for any other purpose than humanitarian. Now, ICC, we have privileges and immunities. We have a clear-cut mandate under the Geneva Convention under international law, which shields us uh, to a certain extent against uh, attempts to take our data lawfully and use it against people. But the humanitarian sector, not all organizations have these privileges and immunities. So I think there should be a larger debate on, 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 on ensuring that sort of the sanctity of humanitarian action is also respected in the digital space. And it's a little bit more complex because you see it if an NGO gets attacked, if someone gets killed, if someone gets kidnapped, if someone's delegation gets broken in. Or you see it less if it happens in the digital space. It's, it's, it's perhaps less easy to grasp, mm-hmm. but it's a variation of the same theme. You mentioned when you say international standards, because I just I'm going to make a parallel with GDPR again and with what you mentioned earlier about having what is it? Is it a supervising kind of? Yeah, we have an independent commission, a control commission on our own handling of the data protection. When you say independent commission, so they're not part of ICRC. That's correct. It's a mixed commission. There are some members of our governance and there are some external members. Okay. Do you think if the humanitarian community needs to strive towards international standards, should they also strive towards a kind of supervisory authority of humanitarian data in the same way that that is meant to exist under GDPR? I'm not I'm not absolutely sure that the solution is a sort of centralized supervisory body, but I think uh, in order to be credible, uh, uh, organizations with their specific mandates should at least uh, clearly be able to be in a position to show how they, not only what kind of rules they they play with, but also how do they have these rules verified. It's interesting, it echoes a little bit, even if it's a very different theme, the issue of, of, of sexual misconduct in the human actor and how yeah. do you, how do you, ensure how do you ensure that that rules that people stand for are, are, are being implemented there was also discussion should there be one centralized supervisory body i'm i'm not a big believer that these centralized bodies really uh, are, are the best solution forward but i think humanitarian organizations should really be able to convincingly explain on how they have found solutions to really apply these rules mm. and 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 uh, do so, but but uh, if I if I may um, open a, a slight tangent remark, I think it the kind of requirements to be a responsible return operation operator in today's world are going up. I've seen it for over twenty years, and it becomes more and more complex to in a way meet all these requirements uh, um, that that are required from us today. And and I think also in the whole issue of localization of smaller organizations, it becomes more and more stressful to be an operator and all the, the systems and processes and rules and policies and supervision that you have to, that you should have in place can become a real challenge for smaller operator yeah. to lift it. So I think there is an issue of knowledge transfer, of cooperation, of, of joint learning uh, in, in order that this doesn't become a, a threshold that is so high that that it sort of squeezes out smaller organizations. This is actually a great seek to my next question because it is the the implementation of those processes is partially donor driven. And so my question is going back to the question earlier about the role for governments, how feasible do you think it is that the same governments who set all of these processes and reporting mechanisms that are incredibly heavy and incredibly bureaucratic, how feasible is it for it to be these same governments who establish the regulatory frameworks? Isn't there some contradiction between them saying we want all of this data collected and fed back to us 
does it make sense to expect them to be the ones saying, actually, you shouldn't be collecting that much data? Or do you think that that push for the regulatory framework needs to come from within? No, it's it's again it's 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 quite a few um, different questions. Perhaps a, f- a first remark is that if I, if I sort of look at our trajectory, our investment in data protection preceded any donor pressure. So I think we invested in it and, and became a voice arguing for the importance of data protection before there was any pressure from 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 governments. Can I'm I not, ask where yeah. that stemmed from? As I said, one of the operational considerations was really we realized more and more that the transfer of data, it came from an operational problem. We realized more and more that as an organization that works around the world and needs that data circulated, has since the inception of the ICSC, we have always had a lot of sensitive data. So it was actually our protection practitioners, what we call protection to people, uh, who work on family links, to work to influence the conduct of hostilities, who visit detainees, who, who collect a lot of sensitive data, of victims of sexual violence or whatever, who really have highly sensitive data. And we also realized that this data, in order that we have an impact, sometimes has to cross the boundaries of a given context. So it came from a very practical problem on how can we ensure in a world where more and more regulation comes about and where we need to be more and more careful because this data sits in places where it could also be attacked and seized. How do we solve that whilst maintaining the trust of the people we try to serve? So it was actually the operational protection problem of the operators on the ground that was a catalyst of an institutional reflection to sort of say we need to find forward-leaning solutions, which is a mixture, of course, of, of, of standards, of walking the talk, of raising concerns uh, of optimization sector for, for the issue, because it, it, it goes beyond the ICC. Perhaps, so, so it came from the practitioners, actually, and then more and more became then a, a setup that also produces, of course, policy that tries to influence the sector that engages in research and development to find solutions, because some of the commercially available solutions aren't always totally adequate for it. Now, I think there are differences between organizations, some organizations, if you are, say, an organization purely doing relief to communities and you hardly collect any personal data, the kind of data sets that you need to collect in the exercise of your function may be less delicate than if you visit prisons of war, detainees, political detainees, persecuted people in war zones. So I think there are different degrees of sensitivity around the data that different actors collect. I think in a natural catastrophe, perhaps the, the, the risk of misuse of data against people is a little bit lower than if you are in a war zone. So, so I think we have also to always look at it from what is an organization doing? And, and that's exactly the, 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 the risk assessment. You, you, you need to really look at the risk and, and assess the risks for the people and then find the right solutions and the right mitigation measures. There is no one size fits all. And, and also, in, in a way, the standards that, that government sets. I don't believe today that donor governments, for the time being, exercise an enormous pressure on organizations to, to invest in, in data protection. I don't see it. Do you think I, they should? I believe it will come. Okay. I, I, think, I think it has, at the very least, to be on the table as a policy consideration to sort of say, depending on what kind of organization I finance and I support and the kind of data it has to be on the table on depending on the sensitivity, depending on whether personal data is being collected or not. It's, it's not every intern actor will necessarily collect personal data. Mm. Uh, I think there are intern actors who, who essentially work on systems and hardly have any personal data. So I think that, that we really have to look at it at a case-by-case basis. But if a humanitarian organization collects a lot of sensitive data, personal data, it should absolutely be part of a dialogue. And 
I think donors have to ask these questions. And yes, I believe that the responsibility of people collecting personal data, independently now of the applicable jurisdiction, uh, needs to be needs to be addressed. Uh, for me, it's part of, that, of today's overall professional attitude that you should have. And on that note, Balthazar, thank you so much for joining me today. for tuning in to this episode of Hear Hear, the humanitarian podcast. This podcast is available on Spotify or YouTube. To find out more about our work, please visit hear-geneva.org, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Hear Geneva, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. 